Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is June 5th, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is an honor to be here in dialogue with members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. And today we warmly welcome participants from the Chicago Philosophy Meetup group who have joined us. Whether you've been with us here before or here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I'd ask you to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I'll call you in order using your first name. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in beginning the last two episodes of the second season of Plato's Pod, we turn our attention to what is perhaps Plato's most enigmatic dialogue, the Parmenides. Today we will discuss to 141a. This work contains the most intricately constructed logic on the nature and form of the one that the revered philosopher Parmenides applies in dialogue with the youngest member of his audience, who happens to be named Aristotle, but not the Aristotle who immediately comes to our minds. Before embarking on this logical quest, Parmenides and Zeno engage in a dialogue with their student, the young Socrates. They begin with the question whether things are not many, as Zeno states, or all is one, as Parmenides holds, and whether in fact there is any difference between the two perspectives. To train Socrates in the art of establishing the truth of the matter, Parmenides establishes rules to address the question. These rules, necessary for dialectic to identify the first principle, require that not only must we hypothesize if each thing is and examine the consequences of that hypothesis in relation to the thing itself and to the other, but we must also hypothesize if the same thing is not and do so by employing the same relational analysis. The application of this method of hypothesis and the logical conundrums that it can uncover occupies the majority of Plato's Parmenides. How do we understand the dialogue's opening question and the differences in the words of Zeno and Parmenides? What is the meaning of many and one, bearing in mind that the former is necessarily greater than the latter, and that without one, how would we define many? Is the form of a thing a unity, or is it divisible into parts and so diluted by the things in which it partakes? Is there a multitude of forms, one for each thing that we distinguish? I'll propose that in the first part of today's discussion, we explore the meaning of the one and the many in the passages from 132a to c, from which was born the third man argument, so-called by the Aristotle who we do know. Does this passage raise contradictory logic, which is never resolved, generating a feedback loop in an infinite regression of self-predication and self-reference for which no absolute logical truth can ever be established? To render a complicated matter in more easily understood terms, as the visitor from Elia suggested in The Statesman, perhaps we can use an analogy. For analogy, we might consider the circle because like the sum of all probability and logic, the circle is a unity with no beginning and no end. So when we reach the end of the Parmenides in our next episode in two weeks, we can consider its conclusion, which is that if one is not, nothing is. It may seem frustrating that Plato never defined for us precisely what is meant by the one, but the fact that this conclusion should have universal application, as Parmenides asserts after testing hypotheses and varying logical circuits with Aristotle, may make us think about universe itself, 
especially if we think the universe is everything. So as Parmenides saying that the universe itself as either something or everything would not exist if one did not exist. Is he saying that the universe and the one are either mutually dependent or mutually indistinguishable? To answer this, it is important to understand the construction of the universe that Plato described in the Timaeus, and most especially the distinction he drew at 28a between the ever-changing physical realm of becoming that our bodies occupy and perceive with the unreasoning senses, and the invisible, eternal, changeless realm of being that is apprehended only by the mind's faculty of reason. If Plato's point is that the universe is one eternal living thing, and that its many facets are fractional dimensions of one, including us, it may well invite reconsideration of important and very relevant perspectives on science and knowledge for us today, 2,400 years after Plato wrote the Parmenides. For perhaps a modern application of the question that Parmenides and Zeno first raise, we have the present debate over whether the physical universe consists of many independent fundamental particles and forces, or whether it exists as one quantum field in which each quantum is like every other quantum. We know from Newton that physical action and reaction are equal, from Einstein that the universe is geometric, and from Noether that symmetry is the basis of the universal laws of conservation. And yet we have not resolved the question of the operation of the universe at the quantum level. Does observation cause a collapse of the quantum wave function, as the Copenhagen interpretation holds? Or does the moon exist only when we look at it? The question Einstein asked in his challenge. Does everything come to be for a cause, as Plato repeatedly wrote in Parmenides and other dialogues? Or is ours a universe of indeterminism itself without reason? If Parmenides' point is that the non-existence of one would negate universal existence, what does he mean by one? And how is it that many cannot exist before one? So to prepare us to examine the third man argument at 132a to c, I thought I'd put this question out to the group. Do you believe we are part of a multiverse, a collection of many universes, each with its own system of logic, as some theorists hold, or is there only one universe? What are your reasons and what to you does one mean? So let's share some perspectives if any of the group would like to start us off. Are there any thoughts on that question? One universe or many universes? Does it get to the heart of the question of the difference between the one and the many? Is this question asking if we think that there's universes beside one another or universes that are existing within the same space, like like on comic books? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's a that's a good question. Uh, one one beside each other, so uh, like a continuity from one to the other, or one multiple universes inside uh, inside one universe. Uh, yeah. So it's a good question. It's a good question. And and you know what are what are your thoughts on either of those uh, uh, options? Yeah, I don't think that they would exist in the same space. I I think if there are other universes, they are beside one another. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's take some let's take some uh, other perspectives. Um, let's go. I see J.K. with his hand up, then Steve, then Yasaswi. So we'll start with J.K. Yeah. Oh, when you um you ask this question and you try to answer it, it's uh, you have two options, right? It's either one or the or the many. Right. So it depends on your perspective, right? So, uh, you know, from the Tao Te Ching, uh, it says that if you, um, if you have desire, 
to see things in that perspective of many, right? If you have the desire, you'll see many, right? But without desire, you get maybe take a different perspective. You see it as one. So that it's possible that it, uh, that you can't answer the question unless you take into consideration your own perspective. There's no objective way of of um, of concluding whether it's one or the other. It depends on your perspective. Thank you. And you know, I just uh, I would would wonder how Timaeus twenty eight A that I mentioned in the introduction fits with that. You know, the 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 notion that uh, the universe, the physical universe at least, is is split in two different components. There's the eternal changes realm of being and the ever-changing realm of becoming. And the ever-changing realm of becoming is the, the realm that we occupy. And that's maybe, as you said, JK, one in which perspective is is really crucial. So thank you. And we'll go to Steve and then Yasaswi. Good morning. Um, I think of it as, um, the possibilities of it's like the same way that if you uh, roll a, a dice and you get a one, there there were five other possible worlds or possibilities, but you don't necessarily think about those. And I think, you know, to the best of my understanding of the quantum uh, many worlds interpretation, that you know those other pathways. Uh, you know, possibly exist from uh, just from the, uh, the wave function, but uh, the same. You put it into human terms of our everyday terms, when you think of Robert Frost's poems about poem about the two paths that uh, uh, split in the woods, and uh, I took the less traveled one. But I think mostly when people think about that, they think about going off on your own and, and exploring the path that had uh, had been less traveled and maybe more interesting. But he really emphasizes in the poem that, you know, he's looking at the other path and realizing that he's, you know, never going to go down that path. So there's a sort of bittersweet feeling of the path you're on and all the other paths that you could take. So I think you know, if I look at the text uh, from 131A to E, and if I just pull out some of my uh, highlights, start with, uh, there are certain forms from which uh, these things, by getting a share of them, it's like you're getting a share of, of the other things, and uh, you get a share of likeness by being part, being like, get a part of largeness by being large. Beauty gets a, a share of beauty, justice of, and beauty. So does the thing get a share as it shares from a whole or from a part? So where are we getting a share as JK say, it's perspective. Are we getting our share from the whole or are we getting a share from a part of it? And then it's the questions asked, do you think then that form as a whole, one thing is each of the many, and what what is to prevent it from being one? So I think it's uh, and, and I'm pretty much agreeing in a long-winded way what J.K. said that uh, it's it's from the observer's per perspective. Thank you for that, and you introduced um, a really interesting part near the beginning of the dialogue. This is the question that is asked of Socrates 
this is around 131b or c, Socrates, he said, how neatly you make one and the same thing be in many places at the same time. It's as if you were to cover many people with a sail and then say that one thing as a whole is over many. Or isn't that the sort of thing you, you mean to say? And there, there's a, they use that analogy. And I mentioned that in the introduction that in the Statesman, uh, the visitor from Elia said that when there's a complicated thing, often you can understand it better if you use analogy. So here they've used the analogy of a bunch of people standing around and they've got this big fabric or sail covering them. And the question is, does each person share in a part of that sail or in the whole sail? And so Socrates replies, perhaps. So he's, he's sitting on the fence. And then the question goes on, in that case, would the sail be as a whole over each person, or would a part of it be over one person and another part over another? And Socrates responds, a part. And then they go on to ask, then are you willing to say, Socrates, that our one form is really divided? Will it still be one? Socrates says, not at all. And so that line of reasoning goes on until Socrates says at the end of that section, by Zeus, it strikes me that it's not at all easy to determine. Where is the distinction drawn between the one and the many? So thank you for that, Steve. We'll go to you, Saswe. Hello. Uh, I, I was thinking that uh, the one or many universe question, it can't be empirically demonstrated from my basic understanding of astronomy at this point. So I really don't know how to answer it. But I would say for physical sciences, it probably should be empirically demonstrated. I, I think uh, I don't want to sound rude, but it sounds a little bit like speculation at this point. Absolutely. And, and could it ever be proven? Could it ever be proven empirically that there is one or many? And, and I think that maybe gets down to the definition of or how we define one and many. So this is, this is why I started with that question, because I think it's, it, it's, it does maybe depend on perspective, but I think it also maybe depends on definition. Uh, Jason, your thoughts? Well, I was just wondering what people have to say about the problem of psychology as opposed to something empirical. I don't, I don't know how Plato handles that. And what do you mean by psychology? Well, your speculation, assuming that there must be other alternatives, this tend, tends to be something we think rather than have empirical evidence of it. A, a good question. And it, it makes me think that really, are we talking about a system of logic here and, and logic as it applies in the psychological context of the mind? And when we ask is there one universe or many universes? Are we asking really, is there one system of logic that ties everything in existence together? Or are there multiple systems of logic so that one system might operate to a certain point in, in one universe and then another universe takes over with a different system of logic, right? Because if, if there was a multiple and they all had the same system of logic, wouldn't they be one? Like what would differentiate them in, in that case? And, and I think it's this question of differentiation, I think, that is particularly critical. There's the section in, in the notes that are on the shared drive. Uh, maybe I'll just put this on the screen. So I've got here on the screen the notes that are on the shared drive. And this is the point that man does not participate in knowledge itself, or man does not partake of knowledge itself. So again, this goes back to the construction of the universe. And so I think I often go back to Timaeus 28a in a lot of things that I discuss about Plato, because it's really the way that, that Plato presents the universe to us as being of two things. There is the 
changing, ever-changing, not completely knowable realm of becoming. And that's the, the realm that our bodies occupy. You know, there, there is uh, birth, maturity, decay, and then death. You know, that's everything in the physical universe tends to entropy, uh, maximum disorder. And that's the, that's the realm that we, that we exist in physically. But there is also the separate realm that we exist in mentally. And maybe just to pick up on the, the word psychology that you used. And that's the eternal changeless realm, which neither increases nor decreases. He calls it the realm of being. It's eternal and it has no beginning and it has no end. So transcending the, the realm of becoming is this eternal realm of being. And so here in this, in this section from 134a to e, they're making the point that we don't have access to eternal truth. We don't have access to eternal truth or knowledge itself. Maybe I'll just read this, 134a. I repeat, forms are what they are of themselves and in relation to themselves. And things that belong to us are in the same way what they are in relation to themselves. Do you understand what I mean? And so here, when he says things that belong to us, he's talking about the realm of becoming, the ever-changing realm of becoming. That's the realm that, that belongs to us. Certainly, Socrates said, I understand. So too, he said, knowledge itself. What knowledge is would be knowledge of that truth itself, which is what truth is. Socrates says, certainly. But wouldn't knowledge that belongs to us be of the truth that belongs to our world? So again, that distinction between the realm of becoming and being. And wouldn't it follow that each particular knowledge that belongs to us is in turn knowledge of some particular thing in our world? Necessarily, Socrates replies. But as you agree, we neither have the forms themselves, nor can they belong to us. Yes, you're quite right. And surely the kinds themselves, what each of them is, are known by the form of knowledge itself. Yes, the very thing that we don't have. No, we don't. So none of the forms is known by us because we don't partake of knowledge itself. It seems not. Then the beautiful itself, what it is, cannot be known by us, nor can the good, nor indeed can any of the things we took to be characters themselves. It looks that way. Here's something even more shocking than that. What's that? Surely you would say that if in fact there is knowledge, a kind itself, it is much more precise than is, than is knowledge that belongs to us. And the same goes for beauty and all the others. Yes. Well, whatever, whatever else partakes of knowledge itself, wouldn't you say that God more than anyone else has this most precise knowledge? Necessarily. Tell me, will God having knowledge itself then be able to know things that belong to our world? Yes, why not? Because we have agreed, Socrates, Parmenides said, that those forms do not have their power in relation to things in our world, and things in our world do not have theirs in relation to forms, but that things in each group have their power in relation to themselves. Yes, we did agree on that. Well then, if this most precise mastery and this most precise knowledge belong to the divine, the God's mastery would never master us, nor could their knowledge know us or anything that belongs to us. No, just as we do not govern them by our governance and know nothing of the divine by our knowledge, so they in turn are, for the same reason, neither our masters nor, being gods, do they know human affairs. So I just, I thought I'd illustrate or, or use that to illustrate the imprecision of knowledge in this particular realm that we occupy. I mean, it's I've talked about it before, the, the realm in which Heisenberg's uncertainty principle operates. The more you know about the, the position of something, the less you know about its momentum and vice versa. It's subject to Gödel's incompleteness theorems. There's a lot of things that maybe we can never know, 
And so maybe it does become a question, you know, as JK introduced uh, the idea of perspective. And so we're left with perspective, but in our perspective, in our individual perspective, is there something that we can point to as the one, as, as one universal composition of logic? Or is, is it something that we, we can't define? And this is maybe part of the challenge that people have with Plato is that he's presenting us this whole dialogue in which he talks about the one, but he never defines the one. What's the mystery about it? Why doesn't he define it? Why doesn't he tell us what the one is that he's talking about? So we'll go to Yasasui. I was going to take the form of beauty as an example. I Mm -hmm. think, uh, does Plato take it as axiomatic that there is a form of beauty and it's well-defined or could beauty be different for each individual? He does say a number of times, I think, that there is a form of beauty, but I don't think he ever says that it's absolutely defined. So I do, to answer your question, I would say it's it's something that's relative based on perspective. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I'm probably mm-hmm. misunderstanding the concept of form then. Okay, well, and, and that's a good question. You know, the what is the concept of form? So there's actually an interesting thing in the translation. So I've used the I've used the translations from from the Plato Complete Works collections I have throughout this series. There's an interesting point that the, the translator of this particular version that I'm using, Mary Louise Gill, raises in her footnote number six. She says that in this dialogue there are three references to form. In this, so she says, in this dialogue, Plato uses three different abstract expressions to specify these entities, two of which occur uh, in the early part of the dialogue, and one later used, uh, used later in the dialogue. And she says, one of the translations of form is the word kind, which I take to mean some form of species. If you have the form of human, there are maybe maybe different species of humans. How do you define different species of human? Well, historically, there was the Neanderthals and then the Denisovans have been more recently discovered. They've been held to be different species, but where do you draw the dividing line between one kind and another kind? Uh, Is it really that distinct? And I think we're finding that that's a lot more blurred than we thought it was. Uh, so there's the idea of kind, and then there's, there's the use of the word character, uh, which is also, you can translate form as character. And character, I take to mean the kind of qualities that make something that we can name. So if we use the name human, human has particular characters. Human can think, human can act, human eats. You know, There's all of these characters of human that you can use. And then she says, then the same translation translates as form. So you've got kind, character, and form, and they're used in kind of different senses throughout this dialogue. So, you know, as you said, what is, what is form? Is it really, do you really need those three different concepts to work together to, to have form? And there's one point where Socrates asks, is form a pattern that is laid down, set down in the universe from the outset? Is it kind of like a template? Are we living in some sort of projection of a template? And that's maybe a question that modern science is really testing and approaching. So Steve, your thoughts? Um, if you could go to the, uh, a little further where it starts the third man argument. Yes. The third man argument arises from the following. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. I suppose you think each form 
Uh, that's one of the abstract expressions that you just quoted as one of the, the definitions. If you think each form is one of the following ground, whether some number of things seems to you to be large, perhaps there seems to be some one character, which is again, another expression of that abstract form. The same as you look at them and from that you can see that one is large. So here it seems that we're using self-reference in order to define uh, the form. This is one of the ways that, that the forms can be defined. You can define it as one over many, self-prediction or non-identity by showing the differentiation. And then it goes on, what about the large itself and the other large things? If you look at them all in the same way with mind's eye, again, won't some one thing appear large by which all things appear large? It seems so. Again, this is uh, the use of self-reference. So I think the beginning part of this uh, third man argument is, is the demonstration uh, of self-reference as they're using um, different definitions of forms just explain, try to explain what it is. So it's explaining itself by defining itself. Thank you for that observation. And that's really where I think that we can dive into this discussion today is, you know, in, in what you just read, Steve, the first paragraph there, you think each form is one on the following ground. When some number of things seem to you to be large, perhaps there seems to be one character, the same as you look at them all. And from that, you conclude the largest one. So in that case, Parmenides is saying, well, do you look at individual items or the parts of the whole, and do you see that all of the parts have some sort of correspondence to the whole? So you're looking first at the parts and then at the whole. So looking first at the parts, can you conclude that the parts are large? And then he says, well, what about uh, the large itself? And in other words, what is the whole of the large? If you look at them all in the same way with the mind's eye, again, won't some one thing appear large by which all these appear large? So in other words, do you look first at the form of the large or, or the definition of the large? And having that definition in mind, then do you look at the individual parts and say, well, okay, that part is part of that overall form of, of large. And it's a really interesting mental exercise. You know, when you say that something is large, by what have you judged that that thing is large? I think it's a real logical challenge. So, I mean, just thinking of numbers, the number one, is a small number compared to the number 100 or to the number 1 million or billion. It's a small number. But compared to the fraction of 1 millionth, it's a large thing. So how do you, in that, that continuum, uh, how do you define what is large? To me, I, I'm seeing in Parmenides a real kind of diving into the logic of the way that we think and the logic of the way we discern things. It makes me think of the, the dialogue, the Theotetus, in which the whole debate is, was whether man is the measure of all things. When we make a, a discernment that something is large, is that discernment correct? Or is there always other perspectives? And again, that word perspective that JK started with. So JK, we'll go to you, your thoughts. We, we, we talk about uh, these things being small and large, aren't they? Within the realm of how, how man, being the measure of all things, is not taken into account as being a finite being, perhaps, with a finite logic, 
So you'd have to take into, uh, into consideration the option that there's an infinite, right? Perspective, perhaps, you know, that we don't, uh, we, we can't maybe even um, grasp so that, um, you know, large and small, those are, those are within the kind of like this finite logic, right? So is, is there a kind of a way of thinking about it in terms of an infinite logic or logic that takes into consideration the infinitude of what the one and the many are? Perhaps that's a different perspective, maybe? I like the way you put that. And I, I like the way you put the question, you know, is if man's logic is not finite, can we a- access the perspective of infinite logic? And can we think of what an infinite logic is? And that's, that's where I said in the introduction, maybe by thinking of analogy, we can maybe wrestle with that question. And that's where I was suggesting the analogy of a circle. And I have a little drawing I can put on the screen, or I can do a little screen drawing, maybe to show one possible conception of, of this. So definitely, well, thank you for raising that question. You know, is, is our logic infinite? I think everybody would agree not. And so then how do we somehow grasp the infinite logic? And, and does that have to do with the way the soul is divided between reason, appetite, and spirit, as we, as we heard in, in Plato's Republic? Um, so it's a, it's a good question. We'll go to Yasasvi and then to Jose. So I, my personal thought is that large can exist without reference to another object. So the object you're talking about that, that's large the concept of large or the form of large wouldn't be possible. Let's say there was only one object in the universe, then it wouldn't be large or small. It would just, the, the concept of large wouldn't exist at that point. And then what if there are three objects in the universe? Are we able to measure large at that point? Yes, we would be able to, but then you could add a fourth object and the, thir- mm. the first three would, there would be another concept of large. It would keep shifting. Right, right. right. Keep shifting. I, I, I like the way you put that. All right. Well, let, let's hold on to that thought. Let's hold on to that thought and see if maybe the analogy of a circle might help with that. Jose, your ideas. Yeah, maybe I need some help here. I was getting confused with attributing to logic adjectives like finite or infinite or different. We started talking about universe and maybe uh, another universe is full of a different logic. Then I heard about our logic maybe is finite and we cannot understand infinite logic. So those are, when I think of logic, I was never thought of using those adjectives. So I just want some help in understanding what that is. What is infinite logic? What is different logic? Logic from all the uh, definitions I have, there are types of logic, right? Deductive, inductive, abductive. And there's some one more about uh, logic by analogy or metaphors, but I don't understand those concepts of infinite and different logic. So I'm just asking for some help. Thank you, and that's that's a great question. Um, I think there's reference to particular particular kind or particular type um, here. I don't think it's it's not used directly with the word logic, but I, I that's how I connect it. So that. There could be one particular thing can have a specific logic that is particular to it, but then there's a general system of logic to which that particular item belongs. So an individual piece of logic would have, in my thinking, a beginning and an end pertaining only to a specific item, but that specific item is then part of a greater system 
involving more items. You know, I mean, it's yes, as we were saying, you know, the every time you add an item to the universe, our, our sense of the maybe our sense of the overall logic keeps shifting as a result. So that that's the that's the distinction I draw is that that a specific thing can have a particular logic that pertains to it, but that logic has a beginning and an end. However, does all logic necessarily does each particular item of logic in this universe then tie to a universal logic, or is somehow each particular thing somehow separate from the universal system of logic? I think that's it's a very good question. Uh, and, and I'd like to get people's views on that. Just because something has a specific logic, does that mean that that is then part of a, a, a complete universal system of logic? So go to Stephen and Yasaswi. I would look at, uh, look at it two ways. I think what uh, Plato is doing here is taking a, a meta view and, and delving into logic itself. What is logic? There's two, two ways of, of looking at what he's saying is, is our cognitive bias. When we're doing logic, we have to realize we're framing it. We're framing it by the only reference points we have. We have the reference points of being a homo sapien on the earth and dealing with our evolved perceptions and uh, cognitive abilities. So I think that's one part of it is, is realizing that there's a frame to this, this logic that it isn't necessarily a, um, that from our perspective, we might not be able to see all of the different possibilities. So there's a limit uh, to it. And just as broadly saying our cognitive bias, that's mostly psychological, but there's also, you know, evolutionary senses and uh, our abilities, but also then looking into um, the process of logic where they're defi defining differentiation of forms and they're getting into a uh, or endless regression where you're always saying what is large large is large because of largeness well then you put that explanation of largeness into that group also and then you're saying okay well then that largeness l1 is is in that group of largeness well then we'll have that group we'll have another group which would be l2 so now is L2 different than L1? So you have two groups. You have the largeness, you have the idea of largeness within that set of largeness. And then you have a set that includes largeness and the idea of largeness. And now is that set different than the other? So I think what they're trying to do is show, or Plato's trying to do is show this endless regression of what knowledge is and to show the uh, limitations therein. I like the way you, you put that, and uh, it was very clearly, I think, described. And, and so I think maybe the question is whether it comes down to some absolute truth. And certainly in that part that I read about knowledge, it seems to imply that there, there can be an absolute knowledge, but it's just not accessible to us for reasons that you stated, cognitive bias or even just, you know, the whole process of maturing and gaining knowledge over time. Um, there's the time factor in there that... Uh, we won't get to today, but the, the beginning of the, the next session, you know, we'll touch upon time and, and that in that role in the, in the whole process. But none of us is born with perfect knowledge. So 
it's something that accretes over time and is is never we never reach an end to it. So and again, I think that that distinction at time is twenty eight a you know that that realm of being that is inaccessible to us, but is maybe like that sail in the analogy that uh, Parmenides uses with Socrates is that sail is over all of us, uh, and maybe that sail is an analogy for logic. I don't know, just a, a thought to put out there. So. We'll go to Yasaswi and then to Jose. I want to go back to your point about particular logic, uh, James. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, are you speaking of an individual deduction or induct, inductive reasoning argument? Because I think deduction, an individual deduction can be wrong, but the system of logic, if it's if you don't engage in logical fallacy, it can't be wrong uh, based on how log, uh, logic works and is defined by human beings. I, I wanted to go back to the point of infinite and finite logic. I don't think there is an infinite or finite logic. I just think if done correctly, logic is not not perfect, but like consistent with itself. I, I like the way you put that consistent with itself. And that's why I'm suggesting the circle analogy. And maybe what I'll draw on the screen shortly might help to might help to demonstrate that. Is not in my view, or at least the way I see it from from the way I read Plato, is that logic is not linear. It, it doesn't have a beginning and an end point. It goes round and around. Uh, and the thing about a circle is it has no beginning and no end. So as long as logic is consistent with itself, it, it can go in that circle. It, it has no beginning and no end. There could be broken logic, of course, and we see many examples of that in in our modern day. But uh, but yeah, I, I like how you said that logic consistent with itself uh, and it's that consistency and maybe, maybe, you know, in the sense of infinite logic, maybe that means consistency forever, regardless of the time. Uh, and again, that's, that's really where 141A in this dialogue picks up is understanding the, the connection of, of maybe logic to time. So thank you for, for raising that and putting it that way. I think it was very helpful. We'll go to Jose and then JK. Yeah, a couple of interesting uh, comments that I heard. First, uh, James, at one point, you mentioned the logic of it. That, that to, to me, is something very significant because in some courses of critical thinking, they offer some form of study and they say the logic of it. And I say, well, wait a second. I don't understand the statement. Right, and they use it, for instance, to say the logic of uh, a career, the logic of a job, the logic of etc. So, to me, at one point, these things don't have logic; they have a description, they have certain things. So, I'm always confused when I hear the logic of it. That's one point. Second point is, I've I've come to believe. Uh, in the past, before I started reading philosophy, I, I like the word meta. And I like the word meta because meta means beyond where you are at in my naive conception, right? So the question about the question to me is a meta question. Or, or, or for instance, if you go in physics, metaphysics is beyond what you understand physics. So then I thought when I was hearing about all this logic, maybe there's something about meta-logic or philosophy of logic. And in fact, what we were talking was just Googling. And there is a very large study field of the, the philosophy of logic. 
which means that we sensible particulars of the world see logic in the way that just as we was describing and I was describing before as, uh, as uh, made up of uh, three or four or four types of logic that we use in order to have, call it correct reasoning. So that is the sensible particular to prove that way of this form of logic. But maybe there's something beyond that. And that's probably what I understand is infinite or kind So I made a note here to read a little more about philosophy of logic because uh, maybe my view of logic is very constrained by why we humans have defined uh, logic from a common sense perspective. Well, well said, and I'd like to join you in that reading of metalogic. I, I think that would be really uh, fascinating to understand the, the, the state of the discussion on that. And certainly, you know, again, that makes me think of that analogy that Parmenides used with Socrates of a number of people standing around with a sail over them. And if is that sail an example maybe of metalogic? So each one of those people in that group has their own logic. Uh, developed over time based on their own particular circumstances, but is that sale an example of the metalogic uh, that would apply to them all? And in that case, to go back to the question of the third man argument, does each one have a share of that total sale, if that's the analogy for logic, or is, is that whole over each one of them? So it, it's a question of parts of the whole. So I, I like the way that you raised that. And then also when you said logic of it, I think the word thing in this dialogue is very important. And maybe when you said it, I equate that with thing. And so the word thing is used with uh, throughout this dialogue and in a lot of Plato's dialogues too. And I think the reference to thing is any, anything that we define as being separate from something else. So for example, there's this thing that I call me, and it is separate from everything else in the entire universe. I have this particular property, I call it me, and there's me and there's other. So me is a thing and everything else are, is other things. And so thing is anything that, uh, anything that has a particular property that does not belong to anything else. And this is where I think there, there gets to be a lot of confusion because we use the same names in different ways. And I think that's maybe Who's what we found in the statesman. Yeah. And, yeah. Just to finish that point, James, that yeah. the, um, the logic of it or logic of thing, I, I have difficulty with the language. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Does that mean, for instance, does that mean an explanation of how that it or that thing became to be the way it is right now in front of me? Is that an explanation? Is that therefore a, 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 a causal chain of events that brought that to that point? I just don't understand the language. The logic, and I've heard it now often, so I say, well, I better understand it because I've heard it a few times, the logic of things, the logic of it, one example I heard, it, which was to me was revealing, is the logic of history. The logic of history, but history doesn't have logic. History has a sequence of events. But maybe there is some logic to the logic of, of history. But I'm trying to find an analogy, like somebody to tell me that the logic of it is like asking yourself the explanation of it. Maybe that isn't, but something like that. What you just said about the logic of history 
makes me think about Plato's Mino, in which in which Socrates says that knowledge, all knowledge is recollection, and then he further defines it as knowledge is the account of the reasons why. And so maybe each thing, each separate thing, has its own account of reasons why that thing exists. And then that takes one back to the beginning of whatever caused that thing in the first place. And here we encounter Plato always saying that everything that comes to be in this realm of becoming has a cause. And so maybe each thing has a separate cause. And But as you say, the language gets very complicated because we all use different terms to in, in different forms of language to uh, to explain what we're trying to to say and so and, and that's a, a huge theme of course throughout Plato I mean in Phaedrus in in many dialogues uh, as I was saying the statesman too you know we when when the visitor familia says you know we use this term democracy as if it's one thing when in fact it it is, in fact, many things, but each one of us uses that term in a different way. So what are we really referring to? What is the thing that we're referring to? And I think that's maybe yeah. where the whole psychological context of this comes about in our, our mode of thinking. Uh, how, do we, how do we get on that same mode of thinking? It's something that also, just to finish this, but Steve mentioned something about, uh, when he was talking about a little logic about your beliefs, your uh, predispositions to certain values. So when you think about the logic of it, if I use it, for instance, hey, James, what was the logic of your action? That's pretty simple, right? Because you said you can say, well, before you act, you usually conclude on some action. And you conclude on some action based on some reasoning that you've undertaken, assuming that you didn't just react and yell at somebody, right? Something that has been deliberate. And you reach a conclusion based on whatever premises of information you have, which is basically an argument to yourself. You reach a conclusion and you act. So when somebody says, what was the logic of doing that? I understand that language. But what was the logic of a rock? Right? So that's why I made the immediate assumption that they mean how did that become? What's the explanation of that rock to be there the way it is with the colors it has, with the attributes that you see? That's all. I don't want to take um, more time on the subject, but it, it just puzzles me sometimes the use of that word that, and um, and that language I don't understand. <laughs> and it's not you. I've heard it yeah. before. Yeah. You know, there's, you made you raised so many great points there, and, and I would just add, you know, what when you say the logic of a rock, a rock is a physical thing. Is there a different set of logic for physical things? You know, Newton says for every physical action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So is that a different logic than the logic that applies to our own mental processes, uh, which is not subject to that that same physical restriction. So, so many questions here, and I think it's it's so important to understand how how everything comes to be and how everything is constructed. Uh, and I think that drives us to our conclusion that we'll we'll talk about uh, in our next session. So, so thank you for that. We'll go to J.K. and then to Steve. Yeah, the answer try to answer some of those questions about. Logic. Uh, each, it seems like each uh, philosophy, right, uh, written by a philosopher, has a different understanding of what logic is. You know, in existentialist philosophy, you know, what is the logic there? How do you? Uh, they have a logic for for explaining what freedom is, existential freedom. So it's not you know someone acts. You ask them why they do that, 
they may not be able to explain you give you the cause and this and that because that that would go into all kinds of theories of determination determinism and so forth but they're going to say you know the existentialist philosopher says that well because um i'm exercising my free will it's my free choice that's the that's the logic there and in terms of history you know uh, i think hegel would be a great exponent of uh the, the, the logic of history, because he explains everything in history as a logical progression of uh, dialectical logic in terms of dialectical thinking. Dialectical logic is a, was, has not been mentioned, which is that, that things occur, you know, and there are opposites, contradictions that occur between among events, and then they lead to a progression or a process of change and leading to other events. So there is a logic there that Hegel tries to explain. But the, the idea that uh, there is an, um, that you can arrive at an absolute, that there's an absolute that uh, human beings can understand comes into question, which I guess uh, every uh, philosopher could posit that, uh, that they can understand the absolute or not to understand the absolute. But the idea that um, every system is consistent within itself, but is, it, um, in, but is that system complete is the question, right? Complete and, and consistent. And that's what that's what Guru said, right? That um, no system is both complete and and consistent at the same time. Now, what kind of logic did he uh, rely on to come to that conclusion? Could you answer that for anybody? Uh, My answer would be the diagonal argument. Although I don't know how specifically he exercised that. I I, I haven't studied his system of logic. I just I've heard that term, the diagonal argument, which is resonates with what I was going to draw on the screen. So. But if anybody else has any answers uh, to your question, JK, it's an excellent, it's an excellent question and a really excellent observation that each philosophical branch has its own system of logic, perhaps, and it can be internally consistent, but as you said, incomplete. And so is there some point that consistency necessarily breaks down or ends if something is not complete? It's a really good question. And again, it gets us to the question is, is there one single system of universal logic? If we live in one universe and there is only one universe and none other, then the system of logic, it would seem to me in that universe, both physical logic and metaphysical logic to use, to borrow from a term that Jose raised, uh, would have to be both complete and consistent. Otherwise, I don't think we could call it a universe. And maybe that goes to the, the, the question of meaning. What do we mean by we, when we use the word universe, the root uni meaning one, and verse perhaps meaning existence. So thank you for the, 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 those excellent observations and questions, JK. And we'll go to Steve and then Yasaswi. As I understand Gödel's incompleteness theorem, Russell and Whitehead attempted to make an ax axiomatic proofs of mathematics a complete proof. And Gödel, again, in my limited mathematical understanding, he used formal language to take all parts of those axioms. And he was able to show that there could be no complete definition because as in what we're trying to show of the forms here, you're always relying on one given to explain what you're given. So the basic axioms are based on assumptions. So he showed that, that no form of logic could be complete. 
So then also going to, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure about Jose's under hearing uh, that logic is a thing. Uh, logic, in my view, logic is a thing that logic is a concept. So there you can define logic. I don't think, or I haven't heard it called that there was a logic of rock or of history or any of that nature. You use logic and we're using logic to understand the forms and the many and the, the uh, one. And then also the cognitive bias. If you do any uh, logical study, you have to realize that there's cognitive bias on your part, that you cannot be completely unbiased. You know, that's the whole reason for double blind experiments when testing uh, drugs. So I think the real issue uh, that is being addressed here with the forms is that there is no definitive logical way to place the forms in uh, a logical system without going back to differentiation, one over many, or uh, self-definition. That's a really interesting you know, history that you presented that, you know, the Russell and Whitehead t- attempting their formal axiomatic proof. And I, I certainly I've, I've seen Russell's great, um, great attempt. It, it's, it's mind boggling to try to understand and read it. Uh, what did he call it? It's Principia, I guess. So, yeah, so really interesting that, that history of how Gödel took that and, and said, as you, as you said, that you're always relying on one given. So what is the cause of that one given that you're relying on? So, so thank you for that perspective. I'll go to Jason and then Mike. Yeah, I was wondering about the problem of the empirical almost suggests a metaphysic, but the psychological keep trying to counter it. I was wondering if anybody had anything to say about that, or am I just getting the question wrong? I don't, I'm not sure. Empirical relies on metaphysics. I guess, do you mean by that, that you have to take a metaphysical perspective to observe the physical? Well, the physical has a metaphysics. Maybe it includes right. mathematics, but then the psychological keeps trying to counter it to some extent. Mm-hmm. Interesting question. Yeah, it, it makes me think of uh, when we talked about the sophist, the idea that the form of the different pervades all forms. And when one says that which is not, the visitor from Elian, the sophist says, you can't negate existence. It's all you can say is when you say something is not, all you're saying is that it is other than that thing. And from that perspective, maybe that's the metaphysical. So you have the thing, and then the thing and, and that which is around the thing is the, is the different. It, it is something other than the thing. So if you think of the thing maybe as being inside a circle, everything outside that circle is something other than the thing. Uh, and maybe that's I just I'm picturing it in my mind as, as maybe metaphysical in the sense of what you were talking about. The thing is inside a container and then everything outside that container is something different. So we can, we can explore that question. I really like that visual image anyway. It, it, it works for me. So we'll go to Mike and then Yasasui. Uh, from my own understanding, uh, in the place of thing, I find it easier to use the Hegelian term organism. Uh, it implies it is organic and natural, and its logic is perfect in relation to its own system, or could be said a uh, system within systems. Um, and as far as we know as humans, we can only see parts to the certain systems uh, with different perspectives or lenses, um, but not all at the same time. You know, we cannot see the one system of systems collectively. Thanks. 
Well, that's great. Can't see the one system of all systems. Uh, and, and yeah, maybe that's the, the, the idea of universe itself. Is that the one system of all of the other systems or organisms, as you said, that it contains? Uh, that's maybe a really helpful uh, way of thinking of thing as organism. I find it helpful in, in the sense that an organism has its own beginning and end, its own method of operation, its own particular characteristics. Uh, so that that word is perhaps really helpful because thing is the word thing we use so widely now. It you can hear the word and it it just it it has such a wide variety of meanings that maybe that's really too confusing. And organism is really helps to narrow it down. So thank you. We'll go to Yasasri and then Matthew. Oh, uh, Matthew, did you want to go first? Okay, if it's yeah. possible. Uh, regarding the perspective of. Uh, a universe that exists in the same place because we don't have an evidence till now about parallel universes as a physical world. Mm -hmm. So I will keep this as an open discussion. And I will uh, go exactly to the example that you gave now, the last one or the idea that you cannot negate the existence. And you are just saying like there is a thing that is observable to us, which is the physics. And there is something like that is within or something like the meta part of this. Uh, from this point, I would like to, to show an example in the physical world. For example, the Newtonian physics that happened previously, a couple of hundred years before, and the quantum physics that we are in the era of it now, or through it, those are two points in time. In each one, we have a logical set about understanding the laws of nature, for example. And if I want to relate or to say that these are consistent with something within. At that time, the same example that, or the same idea that you gave us, James, now that is, you cannot negate existence. It's true in the time of Newton, and it's true in the time now for the for, for being now. And if we consider that this timeline for now, it's going in one direction to infinity. As if we are saying, we are agreeing that there is within something that we cannot tell in an absolute way, it keeps revealing to us some rules or sets that we name them logic that is evolving with all time. So we proved in a way that cannot negate the existence, but we proved also that we cannot acquire or grasp the infinite logic, or even we cannot name it as an infinite logic, that thing that is the meta thing. But at least we, we have something consistent with it, even if we don't know it. As if there is an, a way of induction here that makes us think or that makes us grow or go in time or something like this. I don't know if this example is clear or uh, it helps here in, uh, in understanding what you said about we cannot negate the existence. Well said. Thank you. I, I think that really, really did make me think, especially when you said induction kind of tied it together. I think of induction as going from the limits into the, into the source and I like the way that you, you said that knowledge evolves over time, but it never reaches the, the absolute end. And, and so as it's evolving, you've always got this sort of boundary of logic or boundary of knowledge, I guess, but you can always induce from that boundary the source of the, of the logic and knowledge. And I think that's the, maybe that's the point about dialectic that uh, Parmenides is making with Socrates. We can't destroy dialectic. We can't destroy the ability to find the first source or the, the original cause. And so I think that's, uh, that's an important point. So thank you. And I think that you really put that 
in a way that I think is really understandable. So I think that really helps. So we'll go to Yasasvi and then Jose. Sure. So at one point, they come to the conclusion, Plato and Zeno and Parmenides, that if one of Plato's arguments, I can't find the Stephanus number right now, is true, then God would not have any knowledge of the human realm and the humans would not have any knowledge of the forms, right? right. So uh, I think the main takeaway is you have to uh, relinquish some of your constraints if you want to participate in a certain logical system. So if you believe in God and you want to take Plato's argument at face value, then you can, they're mutually exclusive. You can't have both if Plato's argument is logically consistent. If you don't believe in God, then there can be then you can take Plato's argument. What I'm trying to get at is if you have too many constraints, then uh, it's hard to realize any truth. I think the way you said that, and, and certainly one has to free the mind, I guess, to explore all possible avenues. And I think that's the really powerful point that Parmenides makes with Socrates. They agree that this process of hypothesis has to work both ways. One can't just hypothesize from what one thinks is the start to what one thinks is the end, uh, one has to go back as well. Uh, and I, I have up on screen that, that point that you said about, about God. I found that point about God was really actually re really empowering. He's not negating God in, in this point. He's just saying that, that God is in that e eternal realm of being, which has no direct correspondence with this realm of becoming that we occupy. So one can't be in that realm of being and be pulling the strings in the realm of becoming, which is, I think, a way that a lot of people portray God as, as being our master. And really here, Plato through, through Parmenides is saying that God isn't our master. God might be the creator, but we are the masters. And it's, it's through use of knowledge and logic that we have to master ourselves. I find that really actually very empowering. And, and as you said, to do that, one has to relinquish constraints. We don't, we can't think that we know everything. There are people who go around thinking that they know everything. And if we think that we know everything, that's a constraint because then that obviates all sorts of other paths that we could go down. So I, I think that was a really powerful way of saying that. Jose. Usually in these sessions, I try to have a, one or two takeaways. And um, one of them, let me just narrate something to, to you. And it's going to sound like an argument, an argument for pursuing further this philosophy of logic. Let me tell you how it goes. Somebody asked me a long time ago, why, why are you into philosophy now? And I said, well, the best way to describe it is I'm into philosophy because I want to understand the degree of incompleteness of my knowledge. And then that resulted because of some observations. One of them I remember, somebody mentioned Newton. When Isaac Newton was asked something about if he considers himself a, a great physicist or a physicist, he said, I'm not a physicist. He said, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, of, a philosopher of the natural sciences. Now think about that, right? Everybody focused after that on what he systematized whatever you call it, the gravity, the force equals mass times acceleration, I think, I don't remember. So everybody focused from that point on on what he was able to systematize. But not many people thought about, okay, what are all the other things from his philosophy of the natural sciences that he was not able to systematize? Because all sciences 
I heard that claim, it seems to make sense, start with philosophy. And they come off the philosophy lane once they are able to systematize the knowledge. And it drops. Yeah, it drops down to humanity, to put it that way. So now that I hear, I heard again, I think it was Mike who mentioned the Hegelian, the logic of an organism. But this is the same, the same back to the logic of something. So I'm clearly stuck on what the logic of something is until somebody is able to paraphrase it for me. As they say, if you cannot paraphrase something, you don't quite understand it. And paraphrase it in a few versions in simple terms. Therefore, that's my conclusion. I think I need to get a little more into understanding what's meta to the logic system that we know today. That's great. And let's work on that paraphrasing and maybe find the analogy that really helps to understand that. I think uh, analogy may be another way of saying paraphrasing. So and just to, yeah. to, to finish that point, James, yeah. when I think about the, my, my paraphrasing or what I, when I hear somebody describing the logic of something, is I think they are doing two things simultaneously. They are trying to break it apart and understand how the parts interact to create the whole. But to me, that's, that's not logic in my current knowledge, but maybe my future knowledge it will be. That to me, that means basically the definition of analysis. What is analysis? Is to break something down in its parts and then understand how the parts interact with each other to create the whole. So if that's what you mean by the logic of it, I get it. Well, that's great. And, and the, you know, the, the example of Newton systematizing things, I, I think maybe that comes to the question of first principle. Can you actually systematize the first principle? Uh, or is the first principle just simply something that has to be found through dialectic? And there's actually a great section. It's in the, the second part of Parmenides that we'll cover next time about principles and whether something that has multiple principles is, is incomplete, I think, is the implication that, that you always need to find the first principle. So principles are something that come in order. And so that's something that maybe we can consider as we go into the second part of uh, Permenides in our next session. So we'll go to Jason and then Steve and JK. Yes, um, I find this conversation very interesting because uh, I'm thinking the concept of truth we're saying we can't know everything. So how do you have this concept of truth if we can't know what we're working with empirically? Well, that's, that's a great question. And it means that we are living with uncertainty, right? We, we are living in a physical universe that's subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So that if we know the position of an object, we know the more we know about the position of an object, the less we know about its momentum and vice versa. So I think Plato is telling us here that we just simply have to live with the fact that we can never have absolute truth. But I think he's saying very clearly here and, and elsewhere in his dialogues that there is such a thing as absolute truth, but that is in the upper realm, as it were, the realm of being that is changeless. We live in this ever-changing realm, but the upper level of changeless realm that is never increased nor decreased it just always is. Uh, that's where the absolute truth lies. And that is accessible, he says, or, or at least we can approach that by using reason. So the physical realm that we, we live in, we use our five senses. Our five senses, none of them has the capacity of reason. Reason is in the mind, and that's where we put together this information from the five senses and somehow try to define the, the truth of it. 
and through the course of one's life, one learns how to define the truth. And, and so here in this dialogue, uh, Parmenides, Parmenides is saying, well, Socrates, you know, you, you show some noble traits in, in what you're doing, but you, you haven't yet been gripped by philosophy. You, you haven't yet been trained in how to find the absolute truth, or at least to approach the absolute truth. And so then he puts him, Socrates, through this uh, process of hypothesis, or at least he, he he shows the group this process of hypothesis, not with Socrates, but with Aristotle. And that's meant to show us how we can, we can make our way through all of this uncertainty and approach somewhat something that resembles the, the absolute truth. I don't know if that, if that addresses your point. Well, to some extent, yes. I'm also wondering, you know, what if there are two people who are in disagreement and yet they are existing in the kind of truth, you know, that does happen. I mean, absolutely. And, and certainly we see in the world today in our technological world where disagreement is amplified and broadcast widely and leads to all sorts of disharmony and discord between people. And so I think we need to find some means of uh, moderating or mediating those disagreements uh, and, and understanding each, you know, maybe as as Jose said, understanding what we don't know is more important than understanding what we do know. And certainly Socrates uh, was famous for going around it, for, for observing that the oracle said of him that he was the wisest man before he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. And so maybe if we were more free to admit that we didn't know things and less concerned about proclaiming what we do know, we would get into a better position of, of harmony. And maybe that's part of the relinquishing of constraints that Yasasui mentioned earlier, you know, this constraint that we know, maybe, maybe that's actually a constraint and we have to relinquish that and admit that we don't know or that we know only part, but we don't know the whole. And, and in discussion, you know, discussions like this today, this is this process of dialectic that will lead us to or closer to true knowledge. So it's, it's a really important point, I think, especially as technology becomes more and more pervasive and, and really is being used to amplify these differences. And is there a better way that, or is there a way that we can use technology to, to help us to understand the, the holes in our knowledge and together find a way of, of, of coming to some agreement uh, about the things that we don't know? So a bit of my own philosophy there about technology. Yeah, it's, so, it sounds like Plato is becoming very postmodern, though. Mm -hmm. Is that correct to say that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly see Plato, I see more and more relevance of what Plato wrote 2,400 years ago to today's world. I see absolute relevance of it to today's world. And I've spoken, you know, a number of times on what I think the relevance of his, of his ideas are to quantum mechanics, for example, and the quantum computer. I've, I've spoken about the qubit, the spherical object with a triangle spinning in it, which is going to transmit uh, signals in the quantum computer. I see so many connections between the qubit and the five essential forms that Plato outlined in the sophist that I think that these things really should be better understood and, and Plato not just simply dismissed as somebody out of touch with current times because he wrote 2,400 years ago. Maybe knowledge is something that actually goes around in circles and is not linear. 
so that we don't necessarily know more than they did back then. Maybe, maybe we're just part of this whole circle and, and knowledge just keeps going around. And, and so maybe the ancients actually did know some things that we should now rediscover. So thank you for that observation. And, and then we'll go to Steve and JK. Could we um, move to uh, your point number three, the mean hmm. and the extremes in thought? Yes, I've got that here on the screen. Measurement of relativity requires knowledge of numbers and calculations. Mm-hmm. So reading from the first paragraph, yet on the other hand, Socrates said Parmenides, if someone having an eye on all the difficulties we've just brought up and the others of the same sort won't allow that these are forms for things and won't mark off a form for each one, he won't have anywhere to turn his thoughts since he doesn't allow that for each thing there is a character that is always the same. In this way, he will destroy the power of dialectic entirely. And your footnote is the power of dialectic is that which identifies the first principle. So the dialectic is uh, creating the observing of differences or borders. You identify what is by pointing out the differences. And if you have complete sameness, then there's no information at all. You have to have some differentiation in order for us to uh, gain any information. If I skip down to the next paragraph that starts with Socrates, that uh, I'll go to the last sentence after footnote. Uh, the impulse that you bring to the argument is noble and divine. Make no mistake about it. But while you are still long, young, put your back into it and get more training through something people think useless, what the crowd calls idle talk. Otherwise, the truth will escape you. So we talked last week or the week before about the mean and using that to look at absolute absolute truth. So there are different versions, but you have to look at what is, for example, um, looking at the mean, say, uh, Feynman's histories over past, where you're looking at what is the, uh, and we get back into the possibilities and the, the dice you know, what is the, uh, for all practical purposes, what is the, the path that seems the most likely? What is the path that through logic we can, can deduce is the best path to take? So I think Plato is not destroying his own argument here. He's trying to poke holes into it and then answer it with their, you know, that there is no uh, completeness and that you, you do have to at some point live as a human being in this world and use this predictive knowledge or this wisdom uh, to, to navigate the best path in life. That's, that's really helpful. And, I, and thank you for reading that part, because I think it, it really helps to take us into the next part of Permenides that we'll look at next time in two weeks. And it's the, the whole method of hypothesis that, uh, that they're talking about here. And, and again, you know, is, is man the measure of all things? If just because I say that a rock is a rock, does that mean that that's the definitive determination of what a rock is? Or do I have to go through all sorts of other hypotheses to determine what it is not before I can determine what it is? And that really is, is what they're saying in this section. Maybe I'll just go and, and uh, just before we go to JK, I'll just read a little bit more of, of that section here in in this paragraph that starts the manner is just what you heard from Zeno 
except I was impressed by something you had to say to him. You didn't allow him to remain among visible things and observe their wandering between opposites. And, and here he's talking about our realm of becoming the visible things, right? Because in the realm of being, everything's invisible. And we, we like to think that if it's visible, we have knowledge of it. But here he's saying, no, if, just because it's visible doesn't mean that we have knowledge of it. And then so Parmenides is saying, you, you asked him to observe it instead among those things that one might above all grasp by means of reason. In other words, the realm of, of being and might think to be forms. And then they go on to say, or describe this method of hypothesis here, and maybe I'll just highlight this. So Parmenides says, if you like, take as an example this hypothesis Zeno entertained. If many are, or as the translator says, alternative translations, if many, if things are many, or if there are many, what must the consequences be both for the many themselves in relation to themselves and in relation to the one? And for the one in relation to itself and in relation to the many. And in turn, on the hypothesis, if many are not, you must again examine what the consequences will be both for the one and for the many in relation to themselves and in relation to each other. Here he's saying that you have to hypothesize what the consequences are if the thing is and also if the thing is not. And you do that hypothesis in relation to the things themselves, as well as to the others, the other things. So not just the one thing that you're talking about, but all other things, you know, that the kind of meta thing maybe is a way of putting it. So we got one thing, maybe put that one thing inside a circle, and then you have to look outside the circle and everything else that's outside that circle. And, and so your hypothesis is working both ways from the circle out and into the circle. And maybe that's both deduction and induction, maybe if we use some, some terms of logic, and I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert on terminology in that sense, but um, I just, I wanted to highlight this system of, of hypothesis that they're talking about here, because they go on to use that for really the majority of the, of the dialogue. They work through the logic using this, these hypothesizing back and forth, uh, is versus is not, and uh, looking both at the thing and other things. So, so thank you for, for raising that. We'll go to JK. Yeah, I, I can appreciate the um, complications of this um, logic of, uh, that, re that reason relies on to um, understand the, the one, the one universe. But uh, that means that it has to relegate the world of becoming as, a, as an illusion, right? So, you know, you're relying on this kind of reason to, to determine that there's more truth in that than in the empirical experience that you have of the, in the world of becoming. So there probably should be some kind of balance. And um, perhaps you can also uh, begin with the world of, um, of becoming and arrive at that meta, you know, metaphysics of reason rather than to begin the other way around. So I want to read a quote from Goethe, who was a, a naturalistic scientist and who studied the natural world of plants and animals, and seems to imply that he understood the whole based on his research and his philosophical reasoning. So he says that love of truth shows itself in this, that a man knows how to find and value the good in everything. So it kind of implies that he understands the truth as, as a whole. And based on that, he's able to, at the same time, value everything within that whole. So the things, the parts are essential for making up what the whole is. And it seems like Parmenides' argument is, is, is one-sided. It's just relying on the logic of the invisible, that uh, there is this one, and that is, the, that is the truth, and has to relegate the world of becoming as an illusion. 
So maybe there's there's a there's a kind of balance, or there's a kind of uh, like you say uncertainty as to which is illusion and which is reality, which is truth. And so it seems like Goethe's understanding of truth is, is has a more is more balanced. And uh, acknowledges perhaps the uncertainty, but I, th I think for me that that quote is uh, relevant here. Oh, like that, and thank you. It's uh, the the idea of illusion uh, makes me think of the allegory of the cave in the Republic, and not knowing what we don't know, and in, in the prisoner in the cave not knowing that there's the men on the parapet shining those images on the wall, and he thinks they're a reality. And so maybe this is a case of finding that balance, as you say, of understanding what is just temporary and what is permanent and, and finding that balance. If we find the balance halfway between illusion and permanent reality, maybe that point of balance is actually some sort of absolute to attain, you know, in between those two extremes, the extreme of illusion and the extreme of eternal being, the halfway point maybe is the, the absolute key point to understand. So it, it's actually a very good, a very good point that you you raise about balance. We do have a half an hour or so left, a little bit less than half an hour actually. And I thought here I wanted to do this little screen drawing, and it may be of help. And it's it's the circle and the and its relation maybe to this infinite regress, uh, the third man argument in one thirty two, and and how we might picture that, and and how we might picture form, kind, and character, those three translations of the word that are used variously throughout this dialogue, as the translator noted. So I'll just start with the large, and I'll start with beginning of the large and the end of the large. So I just call this large. So it's just a line. It's just a line. I've drawn a line with two points, one at the beginning, one at the end, and I'll just label that B and E. So beginning and end. So that is an example of what I think is one particular piece of logic. Uh, you know, the large has these characters and all the characters are the same. So I just am drawing these little points on the line because you could define a line as just consisting of a series of points and all the points have the same characters. So these points are, are parts of large. They all have the same character of large. And so we could say that large in this context goes from beginning to end. But what's before large? I'm just going to put a zero and I'll put a zero at the end. So before large is not large. So I'll define not large as being zero. And, and at the end of large, again, there's not large. So what is there before large? Well, maybe that's small. And what is there at the end of large? Well, maybe that's larger. So that would be a particular example of large, but that's not large itself. And so the question is, what is large itself? And here's where I draw a vertical line and a horizontal line, and I join them. I join them at the point that I call be beginning, and the horizontal line now has an end, as does the vertical line. So the vertical line end at the top and runs down to the beginning, which runs across to the end on the horizontal line. So beginning to end, the vertical line goes up, beginning to end, and the horizontal line goes to the right. So is that still large itself? Well, how do we define large itself? Well, large has to, the ends need to meet for it to be self-contained. We talked about logic being self-contained. And so that's where I might draw a triangle. So I've got a right angle triangle now. So the ends meet and there's a beginning. And in here, inside the triangle is the large. 
So it's self-contained, except that the large still depends on this beginning. This beginning isn't connected to anything. It's connected to two ends. But what is it that causes the beginning? And so I draw a question as to the cause of the beginning. We know the ends connect. We know inside, inside this triangle, the beginning and two ends is the large. But that leaves the question of what is the cause of the beginning. And so in this idea of infinite regress, when he says that there's another large that emerges beside this large, well, I thought of the square. And so I just drew another triangle opposed to the first one. And you've got a square. And you've got a square with the diagonal, which connects the, the large contained in that triangle, in that first triangle. But then you've got the other triangle that's now opposed to it. And you've got now two triangles creating a square, sharing the same diagonal. And it further gets complicated if you define each side of the first triangle as one. And then the hypotenuse, the diagonal, is the square root of two, or one plus one as I write it. And that's irrational, incommensurable. And then so that's maybe the infinite regress, because then, then you could start doing this again, just continue drawing on the diagonal, con continue drawing squares. And the diagonal continues to extend out like that and out like that up to infinity. And so maybe that's, that's if, if it helps to think of analogies by way of diagram, that's, that's the way I was thinking of that third man argument, this, this infinite regress is that you would just go along the diagonal. You, you would define something as large or a collection of things as large, but that doesn't explain what, it's, what is not large. And so then that concept of large can go on forever. But then what if you drew four triangles and you connected them in this way? So you still have a square and then you draw a circle around it like this. So you've got a square contained inside a circle. And we know that the ratio of the circumference to the diameter is pi. And so we now have pi plus pi equals circle. And inside, we've got these four triangles. So could we say in here that if this is the large itself inside the square, bounded by two pi, which is incommensurable. And the thing about pi is that the ratio of circumference to diameter goes on forever. There's no end to the ratio of circumference to diameter. And that's what I was thinking about in terms of the logic of uh, self-consistent logic, as somebody mentioned earlier. You would have in here an example of self-consistent logic contained inside the circle. You would have the large itself contained in the square, and then the square is circumscribed by the circle, and there would be no end to it. You could spin the square around inside the circle, and the logic would never end. And then the question is then, how would you extend this logic from one circle, which just describes the large, into all other forms of, or all other specific instances of logic? And so I just wanted to present that as maybe one kind of depiction of, of what they were talking about in the, um, in the third man argument, 132a to b or c in that area, the, the idea of the infinite regress, the problem of self-predication, something begins based on an assumption of, of its predicate, then the question is, what is the cause of that? And then so you get this infinite regress. And so... To have logic self-contained, you know, it just struck me as the, the circle would be a way to contain the logic because the circle has no beginning and no end. And logic, I guess, to be self-consistent can't reach an end. 
at least at least an overall system of logic like the, the logic of a particular thing can reach an end but an overall system of logic can uh, would have to be continuous so i just you know I, I put that out there this this drawing that i have just to ask whether this is helpful is there any other presentations that you think might be might be helpful or, or useful does this make does this make sense to help summarize what we've talked about in in terms of logic and in terms of the one and the many because that's the other thing that we started off with the definition of one and many in here the circle could perhaps be considered one and the contents could express as many but the circle itself is one so you've got an expression contained within the circle but the circle itself is one so just trying to demonstrate by way of analogy and using a drawing and just does anybody have any thoughts about that or any other kind of analogies that they think would be helpful to summarize what we've discussed today or any other points that you can see going forward as we go to that conclusion in the next session conclusion that they that they reach that if one is not nothing is if one is not nothing is that sounds like a pretty universal conclusion nothing is if one is not. And, and so maybe we'll just look at it this way. How do you define one? Uh, maybe there's many different ways to define one. I think unity is maybe one, uh, one definition of one. Uh, is there any other definitions that you think might apply from what we've been discussing today? So when Parmenides says one is not, nothing is, when he says one, what is he referring to? Any thoughts? What do you think of the method of hypothesis that is going to occupy the majority of the of the dialogue from this point? Going back and forth, you know, in this example that I've drawn, the word large is used, but each one of us has a different perspective on large. As I, as I said, I think near the beginning, if I drew a number line, in fact, let me do it, let me do it here on the screen. I'll just try um, uh, here a number line. I'll start at zero and I'll extend it to infinity. And somewhere up near infinity, I'll put one billion. And somewhere close to zero, I'll put one. And so on this number line, where is large? And how, how do we define large in relation to what? And how do we define many? So if I have two or three, is two many? Is three many? Where does many begin and one, and one end? Um, so Steve, your thoughts? The way I framed this, this uh, whole section was a, a discussion between ultimate reality and conventional reality. The, ultimate reality, the idea of the ultimate reality is that there is some perfect form, say the circle as, as you're describing, that there is some perfect form, some ultimate reality beyond us being itself is considered to be a, a form which is ultimate reality. But then when we get down into the conventional reality, when we're doing the math and we're dividing things up and we're making comparisons and we're looking at differences between one and many and, and realizing that we're trying to understand things, the only 
the tools we have are describing the thing with a definition that's based on other things that you might uh, come to the conclusion then that the only ultimate reality is our conventional reality with all of its bumps and uh, issues that they're uh, a conception of something over and above what we can actually perceive is is necessarily by its definition beyond what we can see, which is going back to the very beginning to what J.K. said about the Tao, is the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. Interesting point in that distinction between ultimate reality and conventional reality. And again, I think Plato is one who would say that there is an absolute truth. And so there would be an ultimate reality that is absolute reality. But then that that would raise the question of whether conventional reality, as you call it, is a random thing, or is there some order to the conventional reality? And I think a very empowering statement that was made uh, in that part that we read about, about God not having knowledge of human affairs and not in control of human affairs, I think that's where we're being told that we do have the capacity to establish order in our conventional reality, but in that conventional reality does comply with certain with certain principles. And those principles are numerical and geometric. And that's why in, in the Republic, uh, Socrates says that the first order of business for any philosopher is numbering calculation. And that's why I use that in the heading for the notes for this section. And certainly when it comes to measures like large or small, certainly numbering calculation is, is important in that context. But also in the context of logic, I think the number of times that logic extends branches of logic. I see logic as a very geometric thing. Uh, geometry in my, in my world is the science of connection. And so logic is something that connects ultimately, I think, to itself as I've drawn in the circle here. So thank you for that, that distinction, ultimate and conventional. I think that's really helpful. JK, your thoughts? Yeah. So this kind of um, you know, idea of uh, it, uh, extending into infinity, and that would be the, uh, the, the cosmos, right? The universe as soon as being a universe of order, but would that uh, also discount the idea of the reality of chaos, of dis disorder? Wouldn't the absolute have to uh, also include disorder? Does being not not have to also include non-being in its in its absolute being? Yeah. So those are the questions that I would, I would raise. Yeah. And I, thank you for those. I, I would say the question of being and non-being, non-being. I would subscribe to what the visitor familia said in the sophist is that non-being is unthinkable. It, it, actually, the visitor quotes Parmenides in the sophist as saying the the idea of non-existence is un, is unthinkable. What is thinkable is that when we say something is not, we don't mean to negate existence by saying that. We just we're saying that something is different. So, and that's that's when the the visitor made the statement that the form of the different pervades all other forms. And it's the different that causes these distinctions in our world of becoming. If there were no difference, then we would just simply be living in a static universe. We don't live in a static universe. We live in a universe of differences. And so our task as philosophers is to understand the sources and the order of those differences. And I think that to the extent we understand the order of the differences, we understand also the logic of of the principles by which it works. So I think when you use the word chaos is often used these days in a very negative context, but as you, as you said, it really just means disorder, but I would say not disorder in the sense of randomness, 
disorder that accords to certain principles, the principles that govern order. And so one can go from order at one end of an extreme and disorder on the other end, but they, they're both extremes of the same thing. And so it's just, it's, it's a spectrum. It's not that disorder negates existence or anything like that. I don't know if that context helps, but that's what, what, me, what I thought about based on what you said. Maybe ask that one question again, you know, what is the definition of many? And this number line that I drew, that I drew here on the, on the bottom of the screen, I've got zero, zero is nothing. I've got one, and then I've got two. So is two, do we define two as many or is three many? Do we define two as not many, not so many, three is more, more many? It goes all the way up to infinities. When Parmenides and Zeno had that discussion at the beginning, are things not many or are things one? When Zeno says not many, is he defining many as two? And then not many would therefore be one, which is the same as what Parmenides says. Parmenides says all is one. So are they in fact saying the same thing, which is the point that we started off with on today's discussion. So if things are one, where things are not many, if many is defined as two and things are not many, so then things must be one. Is it the same thing? This sounds like a riddle. Everything in Plato is a riddle, it seems. <laughs> like, just, um, yeah. you, like, like sometimes the, the, the professors of philosophy use this term, how would you resolve? They use, uh, I find that interesting, resolve or solution that discrepancy. In other words, they, they give you two arguments or two cases and and then what would resolve that discrepancy? In other words, what different assumption would you make or what would you change in order right. for it to resolve itself? Right. Right. So here I'm thinking, what happens if you don't call it many, but you call it more than one? And then somebody said, well, can there be more than one if there is no one? Well, the answer is no, because then it's... I cannot talk about more than one if there's no one. And is many, two, three, I, I don't know. If many is all those points in that straight line that are more than one. So can there be many and one? Yeah. Can there be many or more than one without the one? No. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, maybe. Well, I think you, you observed exactly what Parmenides says at 166b. So if one is not, none of the others is conceived to be one or many, since without oneness, it is impossible to conceive of many. So many is necessarily greater than one, but we don't know how much greater. So I think that was a key observation that you made, which addresses exactly what Parmenides says, right, the paragraph before the end of the, of the dialogue. And maybe it is a question of language, you know, so I... I just wrote on the screen here a few terms that we might use for two. Some might call it many, but I don't think many people would call it many. I think people would use the word yeah. few or a couple or more than one. Just a side comment. This language business, I mentioned to you before that it caught my attention once and only once when somebody mentioned the, the arguments of Wittgenstein, the, the biggest problems in philosophy are problems of language. And you, you, you listen to it and say, what? I don't get it, right? But then you get into philosophy and you realize how important language is. And I read something else that I cannot remember where I read it, that the problem with language is that there are too many, or language or grammar, there are too many connectors. In other words, they were suggesting something like, 
when you speak, you only should use subjects and predicates. We know connectors because the connectors create not misinterpretation, but the multiplicity of interpretations. Connectors like verbs, connectors like conjunctions, connectors like all the other things that we learn in grammar. Anyway, I, I need to find it because I, I should have written it down because it describes which ones should be part of a subject and predicate discussion and which ones shouldn't be. I cannot remember where I saw that or heard it. Anyway, back to the problem of language. That's really helpful. And I think that is a key problem or a key challenge. Certainly language is the means by which the soul communicates, I would think, you know, as we are communicating with each other now. Language is not a physical thing, it's an expression of the soul. And so one soul expresses things based on its own experiences, other souls express and understand things based on their own experiences, and somehow we have to find a common ground of language. And I think that's really a theme that is pervasive throughout Plato, is that we really have to understood what it, understand what is meant. And so what is meant by one, what is meant by many? Before we can get into a raging debate about it, we have to talk about definition. And that's where, that's where this all gets very challenging. And there's a part at the beginning where Parmenides says to young Socrates, he says, you have no inkling of the difficulty you are about to get into. <laughs> I love that. No inkling. Like, really, this is almost infinitely deep. When, when you ask yourself the question, what quantifies the many? You come up with numbers, right? And then you think about numbers have no meaning in themselves unless they are attached to something. If I say 20, the first question I'm going to get asked, 20 what? Because 20 doesn't mean anything. So then if you think about that, then you have to think about what the number is attached to. And then, okay, fine, you attach it to something, 20 chairs. And then is that more than 15 chairs? No, is that more than 15? You will ask me again, 15 what? 15 chairs, chairs, identical chairs, identical chairs, sameness, same. Then you can say, well, yeah, there are many of the same kind. So if you don't have the same kind to which you are assigning the numbers, you cannot complete the thought of many. Because if I say to you what 20 footballs is, is more than 10 chairs, can I say that? That's improper, right? That's yeah. Not, not intelligible. Well, but I think what you just said just comes back to the original question that I asked about the number of universes. Multiple, if there are multiple universes, it is a multiple of something, right? And therefore, what, it is, what is it a multiple of? So if we say there are two universes or 10 billion universes, 10 billion of what? And that gets back to the first principle. And I think that's the point that Plato's trying to make is that dialectic gets us to that first principle that the of that we're talking about. So thank you for that. So it implies limits. Limits, exactly. Right? When you say, well, there's more than one universe. Okay. So before we go into the second universe, what are the limits of this one? Yeah, exactly. And what establishes the limits? Why are those limits there? So it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think, I think science is really... We're getting so good at explaining how things happen. And I think that's the, the role of philosophy is now to step in and say, well, why is it happening? And I think that's, that's the real power of philosophy. It's not just idle talk, as Parmenides mentions in this dialogue. It's not just idle talk. Well, we're, we're running out of time. We'll, we'll just maybe end with Jason, a uh, final comment from you, your thoughts. 
Yeah, I was wondering about the problem of numbers. I mean, yes, we are relying on empirical observation to verify math, but there, the logic that involves math is prior to us. Even if we didn't exist, math is already has the logic that's been established. Good observation. Yeah, it's not, it's not that we are inventing math, it's that we're discovering it, right? And so the logic is there to start off with. It's almost as, as if the logic is embedded in, in the universe, right? I can hypothesize and maybe, sure. I don't have an argument, but that's the point of a hypothesis that maybe you need to develop one. But I, I truly believe that the language of the truth is mathematics. And uh, the reason why I, I say that, a few observations, I remember listening to some professor talking about uh, the history of philosophy. When he was talking about the era of Pythagoras, he made an interesting comment. He said, of course, right now we use mathematics for this, for that, gravity, force, friction, whatever. And those were developed uh, as a consequence of trying to systematize some thought. But there's also a lot of mathematics that exists that we don't know what it explains. So that, that I thought it was fascinating. So that means mathematics can actually tell me how incomplete my knowledge is because it will show me a lot of equations, uh, behaviors, right? Because that's what mathematics is, functions that work, but I don't know what they apply to. And it's not because they don't apply to nothing. It's just because I know nothing about what they apply to. That's because knowledge is not truth. It's not, it's not truth? No, it, it's not. Right. At least in our, in, at least in our realm of becoming. Right. Yeah. And I, I really like that discussion, you know, and what you raised in, in Jose's response it's not that we're inventing mathematics, we're, we're finding out what it relates to. And I think that's very much what you said, Jose, about the, the language is mathematics. You know, that was Galileo's observation, you know, that the language of the universe is written in mathematics and, and geometry. And one has to understand that language. And certainly that's, I think, what Einstein helped to prove is that his field equations certainly demonstrate that the universe is both mathematical and geometric. And so this is this is what we need to understand. And this is where I think natural philosophy needs to come into play, and philosophy is not just some sort of esoteric discussion about things that don't really pertain to science, but I think really the, the philosophy of nature itself is, mm. is something that is, it could be very, very powerfully applied today, and I think that's where there is great relevance to what Plato has written. Yeah, and there's also the problem of, we, we think that something is prior to us, that it's more true, or it's true. That can be a problem sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's just because it came before doesn't mean that it is necessarily true. It's still, we need to always look for that first principle. And so that, that could well come before that, which became be, before us. Steve, some final thoughts? Just, I'd like to have a point of order. I, I don't think that Einstein proved that the universe was mathematical and geometrical. I think he proved that we could describe it that way. That's a, that's a good point. I, and yeah, I, I think- point. I would, yeah, you know, I, would, I would take that correction to what I said. Yeah, it, it can be described, and In and fact, yeah, I was just going to say, and and that's the physical description. It does not describe the metaphysical universe of the mind. It does not describe that. Yeah. In fact, it what Steve said correlates to at the beginning, James. You mentioned about the interpretation of Copenhagen, right, for quantum mechanics. And that's exactly the same situation. I mean, they have the uh, function or the wave function, which explains 
perfectly, sorry, predicts perfectly the behavior of the electron in quantum mechanics. But it doesn't say anything about what's in the black box. The black box, box is the source of the multiple interpretations of which the Copenhagen interpretation is the most popular, but is, it has, has no consensus either because it is like a, I, used, I, I like to use that term, the black box. You can, you can perfectly predict the behavior, but you don't know why. You don't know what's happening inside. Like, it's like somebody has never seen an engine. He can predict the behavior of a car. You press the gas pedal and it accelerates. You don't know why until you start to do something else. And uh, I found it fascinating. I, I had to read about it because a friend of mine is a physicist and he has developed an alternative interpretation. He doesn't know how to, uh, how to get the proper level of, of feedback because he's, he was a physicist, but after studying that in Peru, I mean, nobody hires a physicist, right? So, mm. so he had to, to finish his industrial engineering and find some work, but he always had that love for this thing. And when he asked me, help me disseminate this is why I cannot help disseminate what I don't understand. And uh, I had to do some basic research about all these things to understand the core, the core of the issue. Right? And uh, it, it boils down to that is an interpretation. So why couldn't there be an alternative interpretation that could help, for instance, developing of the quantum computer, right? There are limits today. They, they have, I, I don't know how many qubits they can, of capacity they can use where they could be using hundreds. I think that you can count them with the, with the fingers of your hand. And you probably know more about that because it's a, a theme that uh, fascinates you. In fact, news came out this week that they've just managed to entangle 216 qubits, which is just slightly right. more than double the, the previous maximum. So it's it's getting yeah. there. It's getting yeah. there. But it is something that we don't understand, as you said. And it's, uh, it is like a black box. And maybe... Maybe that term could also apply to our minds, and because yeah. we don't, we cannot observe what's in our minds. You, how can you observe yourself? As somebody said in the first season, every time I observe myself, I change myself. So I that, yeah. always, that always sticks in my mind that uh, the observer effect in quantum mechanics is not understood, and that is where I think the benefit of philosophy is, is that it it helps us to understand our own our own effect on things. So yeah. I mean, how, well, how do you understand with your mind, the parts of your mind that are outside your mind? Yeah, exactly. Divide your mind into the mind you know yeah. and the mind you don't know. And then you get into an infinite regress and the third man yeah. argument, perhaps. So, uh, yeah. well, on that note, yeah, I, yeah. On, that, on that note, I was I'd assuming like... we are on, the, on the, the final section. So I apologize yeah. for that yeah. regression. No, no, no worries. On that note, it's actually a very good discussion. So I, I'd like to you know, wind up today's session with thanks very much to everybody who joined, including the, the new people who joined. I do hope to see everybody back in two weeks when we'll, we'll finish season two of Plato's Pod with the remainder of Parmenides going from 141A. I will post notes, which will, you know, I think focus the discussion on a few things because we won't have a chance to really cover Parmenides in all of the detail that it, it deserves. But I do want to try to hit on some points that I think really relate a lot to a lot of the dialogues that we've already discussed. And I think it's maybe a good way of summarizing things. And then certainly in season three, which will start in September, uh, we can continue looking at some of the themes in Parmenides. So again, thank you to all for attending and I uh, hope to see you in two weeks.
I will end the recording now, but those who wish to stay online for Plato's Cafe, which is a casual, unrecorded half-hour discussion on what we've just talked about or Plato and, or any part of Plato or philosophy in general, uh, you're more than welcome to, to stay online for that. So thanks again to everybody and I hope to see you in two weeks.